Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. Time to get your kicks on Route 66? I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator from coast to coast on Route 66. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, your mechanic. Take the wheel, listener. Let's hit the road. Today's quote comes from James Truslow Adams. Dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man, with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and recognized by others for what they are. Last week, we talked about our relationship with ourselves. This week, we're responding to another listener, Kelly, who wanted us to have a discussion about the ever-expanding and changing cultural narrative of relationships and the American dream. So first of all, what is the American dream and who decided what it was? So the American dream, as far as I've researched, is an ever-changing, ever-growing discourse in America. From what I found, it was originally cited in the 1880s as a political campaign, but really didn't come into like the national discussion until significantly later. James Truslow Adams, who actually was the writer of the quote that we use today, wrote The Epic of America in 1931, and that's really where it first came into the national discourse. Peter Marshall wrote and redefined the American dream in the 1950s, quoting, religious liberty to worship God according to the dictates of one's own conscience and equal opportunity for all men. I would add the liberty to not worship God too. Although I highly doubt that Peter Marshall would agree with you. (laughs) Yeah, but that's okay. Lots of people don't agree with me. But the idea, so the framers of the Constitution were trying to create a country in which you had the freedom to worship as you wished, but not the right to impose your religious beliefs on others, which is what they were rebelling against in England. And, it's amazing and that means, how things have changed. Yes. And that means it's the right to live your own life in accord with your religious principles without interference from any other citizen or government agency, as long as you're not breaking any rules. You know, so if you believe in a religion that requires human sacrifice, we may have to intervene a little bit. But within reason, the idea is to have the liberty to choose as you wish. That sounds like a pretty good American dream, but as it has continued over the years, In the 60s, it changed as we had uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Uh, And then it continued to grow and morph. And in the 70s and 80s, really became much more materialistic. So you saw it a lot regarding home ownership and the presence of capitalism. So what you're talking about here is in the 70s and 80s, ad companies came on board and used the idea of the American dream to sell houses. 
So what was a more philosophical view about creating liberty and creating equality between people and allowing folks to achieve as much as they were capable of achieving became a sales tool to buy a house and a plot of land. See, now that sounds like the American dream I grew up with. (laughs) All sales, all capitalism. And, you know, unsurprisingly, as we've shifted into the late 80s and then the 90s, it has become an American dream of wanting money, power, and status. Um, And as you look into the 2000s, the 2010s, range, the American dream seems to be making money, getting rich fast, buying a house, buying a car, and maybe even raise a family, but mostly live the life you've dreamed of without lifting a finger. Get rich quick and get rich at the expense of others. And a lot of people, when we reference the American dream currently, have kind of backdated it to being in the 50s, the idea of a husband-wife suburbs the well-maintained yard, white picket fence, two and a half kids, and dog. This was popularized in the 70s with Happy Days, a TV show. That referenced back to a easier time, a more ideal time in the 1950s, where shows like Father Knows Best and The Donna Reed Show depicted this family as the ideal. In Father Knows Best, the father knows best. Wait, what? And rules- I bet he doesn't, though. Uh, but he rules the family. He, yeah, but I he bet tells, he doesn't know best. He probably doesn't know best, but he did. He was this um, very calming, patriarchal white man who knew everything and could solve all the problems in 30 minutes and told his wife what to do and educated his children. Was the show actually set up in a way that he did always have the right answer? Yes. Yes. Okay, so it wasn't... Somebody should redo that show now where he thinks he has the right answer but is always wrong. And that's the... That was what Happy Days was. Oh, okay. Right? So <laughs> the Cunninghams, the father, the father was just one of the people in the group. He was not the dominant force. And at times, the mom was a dominant force. And when you look in popular culture at things like All in the Family, you have a depiction of the father, Archie Bunker, who thought he knew everything, but was forever quoting incorrect facts. (laughs) Sounds like me. But he was a super dominant force, much like the idealized patriarchal structure from the 1950s. Solid. So we see a lot of this American dream stuff playing out in popular culture. Specifically, we're talking about a lot of TV. I I mean, that's just kind of interesting to me. I don't really know what that means or signifies. What I'll suggest, and Kim, you can jump in here on this, is television is pervasive for many, many people. Mm-hmm. They're either watching it or it's on in the background. And you're getting a lot of subliminal messages about who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to be, what's acceptable in the world and what is not acceptable in the world. And that has an impact on you. When you don't see people on television that represent whoever you are, or they represent who you are in less desirable ways. So think of of Sanford and Sons, right? This was a sitcom about a black father and son who ran a junkyard. That would not have been depicted in necessarily a, a white man and son doing that. Or Chico and the Man, 
This is a Latino deal, one of the first Latino TV shows out there. And again, this was a, an elder male, a white male, and a younger Latino male, but they were working class kind of folk. So a lot of times, even as things were opening up, brown and black people were depicted as working class. It wasn't until some of the shows like Different Strokes, that was an interesting one, A White Rich Man Adopts Two Black Kids. What about like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? That's the, what I was about The family about is pretty wealthy in that. Right. So yeah, we've come way up, but right. it, it evolved from this other place. That's, that's like to, 90s? Yes. I'm trying to think of another one. I can remember the name of the of the character, George Jefferson, and I can remember the theme song, but I can't remember the name of the show. So I think, listener, what you can safely take away from this conversation is that none of us are experts on TV or pop culture. <laughs> Papa, are you referencing the Jeffersons? Yes, that's it. Thank you. And that was a spinoff, actually, from All in the Family. And the Jeffersons came out in the mid-70s. They had a strong run. They ran for 10 years, so they had huge influence. And all of the shows that we've quoted so far, unsurprisingly, a heterosexual couple with that two-child, one-child living a quintessential, easygoing life. And I think a lot of the American dream is referenced to be that way because it's a level of escapism. We want that level of simplicity. If you look outside your door, nothing is simple right now. Everything is kind of chaotic. We all feel overwhelmed and stressed out. And so seeing the quintessential American family happy and everything's resolved in 30 minutes is a really nice way to escape at the end of the day. I do think it adds a lot of pressure to the experience of those who are watching it and they may not realize it, but it becomes an internalized narrative. Like Don was saying, it becomes a subliminal message of what you should be. And because it is so structured in that patriarchal-based family, it's a heterosexual couple, there's the expectation of kids, of home ownership, of having a job, and all of these things, that it can shape how younger generations are viewing relationships. I do think that TV shows have changed significantly in the past several years, where we are getting more representation of at least racially diverse couples. Occasionally, you'll see gay couples or couples without kids or even single parents. But off the top of my head, I'm having a hard time thinking of a TV show that stars a gay couple. Modern Family is probably the best example I could think of, which I feel like Modern Family in its very title is taking a lot of that head on right? and saying like, hey... We need more representation of different kinds of families. I mean, that, that show makes a very obvious and clear effort to represent a wide range of family types. And The Fosters is a really great TV show if you occasionally need a really intense cry. is about a lesbian couple that fosters and adopts children and has, man, they have a whole blend of, blend of family and race within that and... They do a very good job depicting many of the struggles of parenthood. I think it's beautifully done and the acting is great. I do think that pop culture is getting a little bit better at looking at how diverse relationships are, but there is that undertow of the American dream and that's what you're angling for and the societal norm of quintessential married life. Do you think that we 
broadly still strive for that sort of 50s era American dream ideal? Or is that no longer the case now in 2020? So I would suggest that it's not quite the case in 2020 because the American dream morphed again with a huge shift from just buying a house and that being the American dream and independence and that kind of stuff to the concept of greed is good with movies like Wall Street and and also with policies that came up through the 80s and in the 90s that suggested the American dream was to get everything that you could regardless of your effect on the environment, the community or your workers. And I'm, I'm not anti-capitalist. I am a capitalist. I'm an entrepreneur. I've run businesses all of my life. I also recognize that it's easy to get lost in taking advantage of other people or the environment or communities to make your bucks. Now, that's been around forever, right? So, you know, we can go all the way back to the 1800s and early 1900s with the Industrial Revolution. So we moved from agricultural to uh, manufacturing, and we had people like Rockefeller and Vanderbilt. And you could go to any society through all of history and find examples of corruption and the people taking advantage of other people. I mean, that's right. there's so many examples of that. Right. And, and that's that whole idea that greed is good. Greed is terrible. It just kills you. It's cancer of the soul. That's my opinion. You don't think that, that the 50s ideal of the American dream is currently the American dream. In your opinion, it is now heavily skewed towards greed is good, which is a problem. Yeah. So Kim, what do you think the current American dream is? So I agree that yes, it is skewed towards greed is good. And there is a strong level of expectation that you make money, make money fast, and have materialistic possessions. I think if you look at relationships and the narrative around what your relationship should look like, it is still very much back in that 40s, 50s patriarchal heterosexual relationship with kids and the expectation of having a family. I don't have a partner, so I don't get the, when are you having kids question? But I know Ben and Sarah have experienced that from people. And I've seen many of my friends who are in relationships who get that question of, well, when are you going to have kids? And I know a lot of people who don't. Kelly, who wrote in with this question, is one of the people who gets that question of, when are you going to have kids? And she doesn't want children. And it's an interesting battle that she struggles with with her family. And yes, I got approval to talk about that. You know, I think that narrative is still very much there. It's just paired with that expectation that you have a job and you make money and you have materialistic wealth as well. What's your experience, Ben? Just, you know, mama and papa asking me when I'm going to have kids all the time. You know, just bugging me, just getting yeah. at me. That's Strongest true. societal pressure. Wearing, wearing me down. You know, hey. that's, I have thought before about whether I would say through my 20s as I am now in my 30s. <laughs> and now I'm old and wise and I can look back upon my 20s with perfect clarity. 2020 vision. Hey. Uh, yeah. I would say through my 20s, one of the things that I pursued relentlessly was stability. I was really concerned about making it on my own and not ending up back in the quintessential parents' basement trying to figure out what was next. Now, as we've talked about before on the show, both Kim and I did spend a little bit of time back home. That's no totally fine. Now. 
Yeah, there's, they don't have a basement, so we were safe. <laughs> yeah, we'd put you in but, the crawl space. But in pursuing that, things that I prioritized were jobs and career path, having money, housing, so either renting or planning to buy housing, and relationships, finding a partner that I could settle down with. And I chased those things, and I pursued those things, and I achieved those things. And all while I was doing that, I questioned whether I was seeking those things because they were what I wanted or seeking them because they were what society told me I wanted. And to this day, even though I just claimed to have perfect clarity on my 20s, I really couldn't tell you. I don't know. I I don't think I can separate those two things because if they weren't what I wanted, I'm fairly confident I would not have pursued them with the level of intent that I did. Because I do, I'm, I'm a person who tends to do what he wants to do. So I'm confident that I did want those things, but I don't know whether that desire was partially or purely influenced by, you know, growing up in the 90s, seeing the TV shows I saw or being raised in the neighborhood or with the family that we have or going to the schools I went to. I don't know how much of those societal and relationship influences influenced my choices through my 20s. So the question then for me would be, as you look at those things that you achieved, are they still pleasing to you? Yeah, sure. But I would really hope his wife is still pleasing. I mean, that's like one of those thought exercises where you're like, I mean, okay, yes. Yeah, they are pleasing. I don't think that they were wrong choices, but I don't think there is a right choice. I think there's an alternate world, Ben, where I did not go into a relationship in college that lasted. And I stayed in Nashville and took a shot at being a musician with my friends. And I think that there's absolutely an alternate version of my life where I'm much poorer and I don't own a house, but I'm playing music a lot more. I don't know if if that Ben were sitting here right now, would he, and you ask him the same question, he'd probably be like, yeah, I'm happy with all those choices too, right? It's not, it's not like a regret thing. It's not like a right or wrong thing. It's just the choices that I made and why I made them. And all I'm saying is I don't know that I could separate whether that was like being influenced by the American dream or pursuing things that were important to me out of my own like intrinsic properties. I think there's also an influence of the unspoken timeline that you need to achieve these things by a certain age. And I don't know if that changes how you look back at it then. But like for me being 27, I want to own a house because I feel like that's the next step. That's what I should do. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm 27. I'm I'm not at a space to do that. But Ben, you were. That's true. I bought my house in 2014, which was six years ago. So I was 24. 24. Right. And so looking at external pressures, there's that external pressure that I look at with my, my life of, I got a master's degree and directly after getting a master's degree, I should have gone into the field that I'm in, but there was a two year delay between my master's and getting the job in the field. And then also kind of that, well, once you get your job, the next step is a house or, you know, I should be in a relationship, all of these things. And then there's that secondary level of pressure that I put on myself for absolutely no reason of, well, 
Ben got a house when he was 24. Come on, Kim, what are you doing? But we made very different life choices, which is why we're at very different experiences. Yeah, I don't have a master's degree, which A, takes a lot of time and B, costs a lot of money. Right. Well, I didn't spend that money. Mom and Papa spent that money. Yeah, but it does. But it still um, has the same effect in a lot of ways. I right. mean, it's time. Time is a tricky one, right? Because there is that timeline. There should be that sense of urgency. You only have as much time as you have, right? You can't. <laughs> you can't get more time. It's very existential. But you say this stuff all the time. You know that you you don't. You have the one life. And you got to make the best of it that you can. And that's absolutely true. At the same time, though, it's that balance of urgency with patience and happiness. Right. And trusting the process, trusting that like these things will come and they don't come the same way for every person. Right. There's that urgency. And sure, I could fall into a relationship with someone and get married and have that that checkbox checked. But I can almost guarantee you I wouldn't be happy with that person short of a miracle happening in the next, you know, chunk of time. But, you know, I would rather be single well into my 30s and even 40s and wait for someone that I actually want to be with than rush it and think that a relationship would be good. Same with, you know, housing. I would rather rent an apartment until I feel like that next move is the correct next move and going slower and being more intentional with my actions is something that not everyone realizes is a choice. I have a lot of friends that felt the pressure from families or from their friends and all that stuff to get married fast, to move in together fast, to do all of these things because time is running out and, you know, you're supposed to get pregnant and have your kids before you're 30 and, you know, all of these weird cultural statements that have existed for no reason other than... Well, they do exist for a reason and they exist for historical reasons and cultural reasons and they are different across cultures, um, although there are some similarities as well. So I wouldn't discount them in that way, but I think that the point is that these things are changing and that here and now, those ideals of being married and having a family in sort of your mid to late 20s and settling down are getting pushed further back or they're not happening at all. For other people, they are happening. You know, it just there's more diversity now to the American dream than there ever has been. And I hope that it continues to become more diverse. I think that you see like as we see more representation of different cultures and lifestyles and people in popular media, that's reflected and caused by and it it bounces back and forth the actual you know social uh landscape of the united states at least but i think even globally that's true there's just more diversity we're we're seeing more and more different ways of living a life well yes i think that's correct and defining it differently and one one of the things that has put a lot of pressure on the american dream is defining success solely in terms of dollars. And, and I think that has narrowed our creativity and our ability to to adapt and change in a global market because we only count success in terms of dollars. And perceived intelligence. I think there's a lot of pressure on having degrees to prove that you're capable of things. You know, another narrative we've talked about in the past is that expectation of going to college. 
And that's how you're going to achieve the American dream and get the big bucks. Yeah, we talked about that a few episodes ago that I think I even mentioned thinking back on it. I never thought of going to college as an option. It was like what we were going to do. Sorry. And no, I mean, what we talked about that a little bit, like that doesn't necessarily mean that I regret going to college again. Like I don't, I have a lot of trouble viewing choices in my past with any sort of regret. It's like, if I think back on them, given the information that I had then and who I was as a person, I would probably make the exact same choice over and over again. If I lived my life a thousand times over, it would be exactly the same. It'd be a very boring show. There are certain choices I do think, given the knowledge and experience I have as a 30-year-old, if I could transport that back to my 18-year-old self, of course I would make different decisions because I would know a ton more stuff. But that's not how it works. I also do think that if either Ben or I had gone to Mama and Papa and said, hey, I'm going to go into a trade school and become a mechanic or, you know, do one of these other things, they would have been supportive of it. I think our narrative within the family wasn't as much pressure of go be a lawyer, go become a therapist and take on the family name. You know, that wasn't... Yeah, certainly there wasn't pressure for higher education for the purpose of high-powered or high-paying jobs. Right. Right. Um, But there are families that have that pressure and, you know, we're blessed to have been in a family that would have accepted whatever we decided to do as long as we went and did something. (laughs) It did accept my Bachelor of Arts in songwriting. So Yes. 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 Although I do have colleagues who have laughed at me. (laughs) I mean, I laugh at myself, so I don't. I don't. They should should get in line. You developed a great skill. Just because you're not choosing to do that particular trade now doesn't mean that it's a bad skill. I certainly learned a lot. Yes. All of those things are important. And when we come back to the American dream, one of the things that I hope the listener takes from this entire conversation is that the American dream is crafted by the messages we take in and choose to believe for ourselves. It's not a thing in and of itself. When it started, you know, when it was first really articulated, um, not just mentioned in political speeches, but when it was first articulated, it was a dream about a more utopian society where each individual could become who they were capable of becoming, that they had both the freedom and the wherewithal to pursue their dream. And perhaps the support as well. Yes. And maybe that's part of the wherewithal. I don't know. Well, um, to me, wherewithal is like the, the freedom, meaning that they are not restricted. Right. The wherewithal, meaning that they have thought about what they want and are making a, a self-aware choice. And then the support, meaning that society and culture as a whole agrees with supports what that choice is. So the example of trade school is good because... Broadly speaking, our American culture would not support someone who made the choice themselves, I want to go to trade school instead of college. There are a lot of families that would say, no, you need to go to college because money, because whatever. And then that's what I mean by the support. Sure. You know, and it's it's fascinating because there was a time where being a craftsman was seen as a very high level thing. You know, if you were a master blacksmith or a master carpenter or um, a master cooper, I think uh, we're actually seeing some resurgence of that. Well, we're going to have to because um, 
some of the some of the the statements out there is that uh, we're going to lose eighty percent of the plumbers and uh, pipe fitters and those kinds of things. And let me tell you, our world is going to get really stinky if we don't have plumbers to fix all of the systems that we have. We have a lot of people in small spaces. It's going to get stinky. <laughs> we need to come back to sort of a simpler version of it. Yes. Where it has less to do with these specific goals and more to do with the freedom to pursue the goal that you want. Yes. To become who you are meant to be, whatever that is, in whatever way it manifests, without judgment or hampering by society or any individual. That's beautiful. If only. That is a good dream. Okay. So how when you say millennials are killing things, what do you mean killing? Is that like the slang killing, like we're doing it really great? Or killing like the, I'm making it die. (laughs) Making it die. So millennials have changed the American dream and the consumerist habits, I suppose. I don't know. And millennials get a lot of, a lot of flack for a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I just want to hop in real quick. I don't think it's killing in either of those definitions because I think killing is in this case, sort of a clickbaity journalistic enhancement. And what Kim said makes a lot more sense. Millennials have changed things, which makes sense. Any generation of people coming in is going to change something. Right. Um, Sorry, please continue. Yes, you are correct. It is a clickbaity thing, which I was going to get to in a minute. But thank you, Ben. Because it's, I mean, in my opinion, it is a bunch of BS. Am I allowed to say that? Because we are changing how we approach the world. I think one of my favorite things that I read while I was doing this research was the CEO of Buffalo Wild Wings stating that millennial consumers are more attracted than their elders to cooking at home, ordering delivery from restaurants, and eating quickly in fast, casual, or quick-serve restaurants, as they accused us of, quote-unquote, killing Buffalo Wild Wings. I'm confused by this. So I admit, I don't think I've ever eaten at a Buffalo Wild Wings, so I'm, I'm very sorry, Buffalo Wild Wings. You're killing it. But... Buffalo Wild Wings is a sit-down restaurant? Yes. Is that the case? It's okay. a So it's not bar. a fast casual. It's not a quick serve. But it's also not a fancy restaurant. No. It's a sports bar. Right. right. But I'm just saying you can order delivery from Buffalo Wild Wings, right? Yes. You can. I assume. Yes. So I just don't... There's like so many statements in this about what millennials do or don't like. Right. A lot of the social narrative about millennials tends to be that we're messing up the status quo. Another another thing that we are accused of killing is the diamond industry because one, less people are getting married to people who are getting them for, you know, engagement rings aren't using diamonds. They're using other stones uh, and a lot of people have problems with how diamonds are mined. Thank you. I was like, cultivated is not the right word. Mind. They and you're absolutely right. Because let me tell you, the whole idea, the selling behind a diamond was to give your loved one a unique stone to show how unique your relationship was. That was the whole reason for the damn diamond. And if it's so unique, why is it that every couple gets a diamond? <laughs> seems more ubiquitous to me, but they're terrible in the way that they were mined, particularly in, in Africa. So we're accused of killing diamonds. Uh, we're accused of killing casinos, I reckon, because you're too smart silly. to gamble. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 
Um, Millennials are smart enough to understand the math. Right. <laughs> we're killing hotels because we're doing the Airbnb and all of those things. Some of the ones I don't entirely understand. So on the list from this particular article that I looked that I'll put in our references, I'll just list them out. We are accused of killing dinner dates, hotels, credit cards, grocery stores, cinemas, Home Depot, diamonds, banks, gyms, department stores, vacations and cruises, casinos, car industry, home ownership, of course, Buffalo Wild Wings, bar soap, marriage, the workforce, <laughs> trees, apparently because we like physical books more than e-readers, which, okay, I don't find that to be true, but sure. The hangout sitcom, like Friends and uh, How I Met Your Mother, and According to some studies, we are also killing sex, but I reckon those studies are wrong. Maybe those studies mean killing and like doing it really well. Ah, Actually, the, the sex thing is a side effect of the ubiquitousness of uh, porn and the fact that people are becoming inured to regular physical sex because they want the extremities that are produced in porn. Um, I mean, one, it's extremities produced in porn. That was not a sentence I ever thought I'd hear you say. And two, <laughs> I know a lot of millennials and I can say there is a lot of sex still happening out there. Um, uh, it, yes, no doubt. I mean, it, but the occurrence of sexual dysfunction in late 20s through 40s is much higher now than it was 35 years ago. But I don't know that that's <laughs> Millennials killing things. And I don't actually know that millennials did this because all of the people who invented these things were baby boomers. <laughs> Wait. And just be. You mean to say that the boomers are accusing us millennials of doing things that are inherently not that wrong? Like, no, the, the, the boomers are saying, hey, we invented these things and we want to make money from them and you're not buying them. So that means you're wrong. Like credit cards, definitely baby boomers. We were the ones who invented that. Weren't credit cards before 1940. <laughs> and I mean, Card. my personal favorite is that the millennials are killing trees. Like we haven't been making books for years upon years. Like it's more that it's more that this is specifically saying we're killing trees through physical books as the the medium through which to kill trees because there are so many things Correct. that you and there it's just no way in my mind that today's modern businesses run almost entirely digitally with far less paper than ever before in history are being offset by millennials buying books. <laughs> <laughs> well, so a part of this, I really think is sour grapes based on any generation that is not the millennials, because a lot of this is the evolution of the marketplace, right? As the marketplace evolves, it, this would be like saying that the folks, the flappers in the 1920s were responsible for the death of the buggy industry. I mean, that's true, right? That's how buggy that works, industry. of course. Flappers well, and buggies? What? So <laughs> flappers the are flappers. The flappers were uh, the generation of the 1920s. Yes. Okay? And before that, people got around with horse and buggy. The car was invented and started to to um, make okay. its way into American society in the early 1900s. Right, and it I didn't overtook. tie flapper to car. I'm sorry, but it's because it's a, an accusation. Just because you were of right, the right. generation that were in the flappers, 
you caused the death of the buggy. That's hey, not true. It's wait. the evolution of the of the economy. Now millennials are causing the death of the car industry. That's pretty Be, fun. We're we're well, just we're, next next level. So what do you how are you doing that? This article is postulating that a lot of it has to do with purchase power. That many millennials just can't afford these things. So perhaps they are renting cars or buying used cars instead of new cars. Also, I think more millennials are, and this is speculation on my part, are more likely to live in a city where they can use public transport than to buy cars. And I think that that will change over time. So like they, I suspect many of these same millennials that don't own cars will eventually move someplace where they buy a car and also rise in purchasing power. And thus, all of these articles will not matter anymore. But in the moment... Sure. And a counter-argument for this data isn't that millennials don't want to buy cars or millennials don't make enough money. It's that the generations ahead of them have structured the workforce in such a way as to compress wages at entry-level jobs and accelerate wages at executive-level jobs. Yeah. And this article actually points out a lot of that stuff, too that they don't see a lot of data that suggests that millennials have different preferences for consumption more that they don't necessarily have the means for the same consumption that boomers do. I mean, I don't know. I got sick of generational comparisons a long time ago. There's data and you can make it work either way that you want it to work. And also, and this is true of as much as I like to tease boomers or whatever, it's true of any generation. There's it's way too broad a category to draw these kinds of conclusions in any meaningful way. I know just as many people who are, I don't know, really, really wealthy and own all of these things and support all of these industries wholeheartedly as I do people who don't. And it, it, they're, they're both millennials. So like it completely equals out. But it is funny that we get this rap for killing things. Well, and it's, um, it's interesting that, again, that's the social narrative, right? So this is what people are reading, and it right. becomes that clickbait. So people are like, ooh, what's happening now? And that becomes the discourse. So you do get those boomers, for lack of a better term, who like this clickbait and then are forcing it down others' throats and being like, well, you're the reason this, this, and this. And you get a lot of hate and noise about these things. What it suggests is not taking personal responsibility, right? I want to make it the fault of someone else instead of recognizing my contributions to this. You know, it's, it's very possible that Sally Smith simply did not read what people wanted to eat or how they wanted to eat it well enough to keep her business in business. I mean, they're still in business. And as far as I know, they're doing fine. I mean, I like their wings. I don't like their French fries, but their wings and mozzarella sticks are on point. Send her a note. Maybe she can change it. I think restaurant wise, there's perhaps a, and maybe this is just the type of millennial I am, but I feel like there is a sort of split. If you look at, if you think about the restaurant industry, and this is why I was asking like, what kind of restaurant is Buffalo Wild Wings? It's not fast casual. It's not a fast food restaurant. But it's a chain restaurant. Right. It's also not like a local, not even fancy, but like a local independent restaurant. So as a millennial, one of the things I value is supporting a local business like that. And so if I'm going to get wings, I would rather get them from some local Durham place than from a Buffalo Wild Wings. But if I want fast food, I, you know, would go to a fast food joint. Like, that's fine, too. 
or a sports bar mentality. Buffalo Wild Wings is very much a sports bar mentality. You gather there to watch games, eat buffalo wings, drink beer. And, um, and I'm not I'm not putting that down. That's a class that people like. Um, right. But well, there are also local examples of that. Right. That's so what I, I was about if to I were going to go hang with my friends and watch a basketball game, I'm going to go to one of the local locally owned breweries. independent breweries, yeah, or a so sports bar. The counter argument to that is all of the franchises of Buffalo Wild Wings or lots of others, I don't mean to pick on them. Yeah, um, yeah. are locally owned. There right. is a, a you know, a person or a family that owns that set of franchises in this area. Yeah, and I know that. And I guess that's I mean maybe that is a um I won't call it a flaw or a it's it's I guess a quality perhaps of millennials is this value of not just a local thing because I do understand how franchises work but that that independence that like this is a unique thing we don't want diamonds but we do want unique restaurants sure and we also want to appreciate the creativity and style of an individual so you know when you go to a restaurant where the chef owns it and the chef is bringing his or her or their particular approach to to preparing and presenting food there's something incredibly wonderful about that because it's not going to be the same. One of the things that people love about going to a place like Buffalo Wild Wings is that the wings are going to be the same as they were six months ago. And and that's one of their anchor points that's is disturbing. I can predict, but I can predict what it's going to taste like. There are restaurants that I go to where the menu is different week to week, day to day sometimes. <laughs> and it depends on what was available in the farmer's market. Do you think that millennials value that change in a way that like boomers value the stability? Yes, actually. So when, <laughs> when we look at how did the fast food or the, the franchised restaurant develop, McDonald's is the first major deal of that. And, and the whole idea was you could travel across the United States and know that when you stopped at a McDonald's, it would taste exactly the same as it did wherever you started. And that was and, and that was valued at the time. Like society broadly really wanted that consistency, that certainty. Yeah, that comfort. Right. Well, and if you look at what was happening in the world, right, of sorry, I was trying to remember all of my historical events from when the boomers were because that was the sixties and seventies, right? Uh no, no, no boomers. It's like the forties and fifties. Forty forty six to sixty three. Well, let's Ask the boomer Something what like was that. happening socially for you as far as wars were developing and, you know, there was kind of a general upheaval and chaos happening. And so that stability of knowing McDonald's is going to taste the same from North Carolina to California, like, you know, was nice. Mm -hmm. And I was wrong. McDonald's wasn't the first. It was just the most successful. Chick-fil-A beats them out by... A lot of huh. years. Chick-fil-A started in 1946 and uh, McDonald's didn't start until 1955. Wow. How about yeah. that? It was also the new thing, right? So it, almost from a technological standpoint, right? Sure. That, and, and there were a bunch of things happening then. We came back from World War II. There was a huge push uh, for interstate travel. Cars were much more ubiquitous. The suburbs were much more ubiquitous. The idea of fast food or manufactured food was growing hugely. So frozen dinners and TV dinners and that kind of stuff. So what, I mean, there's probably lots of things 
Not that people were doing these kinds of articles or journalism back then, but if they were, it would probably be a lot of things along the lines of these baby boomers are killing like fancy restaurants and they're killing home cooking. Like all the yes. women are going to forget how to cook because we have frozen meals now. Right. Yes. So it's the I, same mentality. Just it's the same mentality. Right. And, and we were accused of killing the family owned farm. Um, mm. because the agribusiness was buying all of these farms so that they could produce foods cheaper and you know manufacture them into foods that you could quickly eat. Mm. So and these are all marketplace changes and people go one way or another and you know there is a big return now to people cooking at home and I love that. I never left cooking at home. But And yeah. also to family farms. There's way more accessibility to local farms then this is this is kind of what i was saying about like trades coming back in some ways i think about things like etsy i think about the way that people value unique goods and handmade goods and i i think about the like stuff moves in waves you know and it or it pendulums back and forth a lot of times this is true in graphic design you'll get a whole era of things looking one. This is why you can look at like the eighties and picture exactly what, you know, a sign looks like in the eighties, but that stuff comes back, you know, it, it goes away and it comes back. It happens in music too. And I think maybe it takes longer for big cultural trends like this, but it'd be really interesting to see in another hundred years, what is getting killed I'm using air quotes here and what has become the popular thing or what the current generation is interested in. Well, we need the change. We need the change. There are a lot of things that are stuck right now. There you have it, folks. Our take on the American dream, where it started, where it is and where maybe it's headed. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thanks, Kelly, for sending in your question. We're always excited to tackle listener questions. So don't forget to reach out at questions at afpsych.com. Last, but possibly most importantly, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. We'll see you next time and enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Mm-hmm.